This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, Shane and Canadian singer-songwriter Sam Roberts recount 20 years of working in the music industry. Sam also tells us about his new song as part of New Music Monday. Handy Andy Brar's quest to capture a pesky mouse has taken the nation by storm. We find out if his high-tech method of capturing the mouse worked. Plus, are Airbnb spying on you? What is the weirdest job you've ever done? Listener Jim Willox has been a bailiff for years. He tells us about the weirdest repos he has ever gone through. All of that on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. At the risk of dating myself and our guest, I will say that it was more than 20 years ago when we met for the first time. There was a young man who was fresh to the music scene and he was making music at a time when rock was very rocky. And out came this dude who brought depth and uh, soulful lyrics and a little bit more of a creative sound to it as opposed to just plugging it in and turning it up to 10. His name is Sam Roberts. He's from Montreal. He's in Montreal, and uh, and he's here with us now. Uh, Sam, hi. Great to see you. Hey, thank you. It's nice to see you too. After all this time, it's been a uh, it's been a bit of a trip, and I I don't <laughs> I don't want to date us too badly by saying it was more than twenty years ago, but it was literally more than twenty years ago. So I guess we might as well just acknowledge it and move on. Yeah, it's kind of hard. It, it's hard to avoid that. Um, that milestone now. Once you cross the twenty year barrier, you. you, you you start feeling the weight of that history, you know, and all the relationships that have come and gone. But I find the more sort of the more involved I've been in this, you know, through the course of my life, that there's no such thing as a relationship that just fizzles off. It, it always mm-hmm. comes back in some way. There's a, there's a there's a cyclical nature to all of this that you don't necessarily see it when you're in the moment. You always sort of feel like you're moving ahead in a linear way but uh yeah this this whole this whole line of work has a tendency to sort of come back on itself yeah and 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 i think that's a good example for life too right um never assume sort of that that notion that people come into your life for a reason or a season or a lifetime and and sometimes they just come in for new seasons and new reasons and and Mm -hmm. and that's the magic of all of it so uh, very evident to me today so i appreciate that for you you've got some let's start with some new stuff because you have new songs that are out um, you've been working on, on new things and, um, and, uh, no new album just yet. That's out just the single. Is that right? Yeah. We're trying something a little bit different, which is putting the single out in, in sort of advance of action. It's, it's kind of like, kind of like taking money out on a credit card in a lot of ways. <laughs> it is a little bit, isn't it? We're assuming that the album's going to be, no, we're going to put the rest of the record out in the fall, but, uh, you know, I'm. I am sitting here in my in the basement of my home where I write all the music and I will full disclosure sort of, I haven't finished exactly writing all of the stuff that's going to be on this record, but it just felt yeah. like, it just felt like it was time to put something new out and to stoke the fire a little bit, not just for the people out there, but certainly for my bandmates and myself, you know, there's nothing quite yeah. like sitting on the egg that is a song for too long until it's way past its sort of hatching date. Uh, and feeling that you've lost that opportunity to share something that you you still have this immediate sort of burning connection with. So to me, it was just important to to put that song out, songs called Picture of Love, and just to put it out while we were still feeling, um, yeah, that that urgency that comes with with bringing a song to life. Uh, we will play Picture of Love uh, here on the shift as well. By the way, I'll take one little second here and I'll a little clip for you of what it sounds like. I drew a picture of love with crooked lines and it don't look right Two hearts crossed forever intertwined but still don't fit right I drew a picture of love So it's Sam Roberts and Picture of Love. Sam Roberts is in Montreal right now and Sam... So you talked about that, that sort of incubation thing. Um, it, isn't that the dichotomy of music in general, where there's this sort of presence to what you're doing, this little bubble that you live in with the song, this relationship you have with the song, but at the same time, timing is everything. So you're in this moment of this sort of Kairos bubble of now, 
and then yet you get into the timing of life and the market and you've got to get the songs out at the right time of year at the right time of the music cycle all of these various businessy things so you've kind of got the super presence and then you've got this sort of super linear thing going on all at the same time that must be difficult to balance yeah i'm and i'm i'm horrible at it to be honest with you and i've always struggled with it uh since day one that this idea that uh because it's not just about sharing the music necessarily it's also about sharing the way you feel about the music and and my the sort of the potency of my relationship was never stronger with the song than when it, when it's just been recorded so my my natural instinct is to want to share that with as many people who are willing to listen as quickly as possible but like you say then you're sort of thrown into this mechanical world outside of your control and that is you know the market what the record like oh the timing's not good you can't put out a song you know this month because you know the beyonce record mariah carey's comeback and the new you know metallica <laughs> record are all coming out at the same time and it's just not so next thing you know you've been sitting on this thing for six months and that space sort of between the the now and and that period of inception and creation you know it, it gets drawn out to the point where you lose that sense of immediacy uh so yeah i've, I've always wrestled with that and, and i do sort of think back to the days and maybe i have a, i'm sort of over uh you know being overly nostalgic uh especially for a time i wasn't even alive in but this idea of sort of recording a song like elvis presley and putting it out on you know it's being printed on wax and sent down to the local djs you know, uh, shopping and being and spun on the radio sort of, you know, within 24 hours, that to me is how I would like all music to come out. But of course, I'm still naive, even after all this time. And I still, well, argue, still you carry that though. That's a big, that's a big part of you. Um, that sort of, I would say call, I would call you an old soul. I, I mean that as a compliment, not an insult, but I mean, you know, even in your music, you have that sort of flair, there's a little bit of a throwback flair, always has been, from Brother Down in the very beginning, 20 years ago to today, you have a little bit of that. We do Psychedelic Sunday here on The Shift, and you've got that sort of throwback feel to some of those roots pieces that are in it. So to me, it, I guess it kind of adds up the old notion that you could go into a studio, cut a record, ship it out to all the DJs the next day, mm -hmm. uh, and have it be uh, you know so immediate in timing. I mean, th that seems to be woven into your fiber a little bit. Yeah, you know, I I do feel that way, and and perhaps that's, that's a function of the records that I grew up listening to, which was very much you know the old cliche of listening to what my mom and dad had in the record collection, and it, it did go from the the Elvis Presleys to the you know the Beatles, but my dad was really into Pink Floyd and Hawkwind and the sort of psychedelics of the early psychedelic music i don't know about the other psychedelics but you know he's never admitted oh you never know <laughs> what he's been into but i can only i can only assume uh but yeah i mean that's that was a, sort of my musical diet growing up and you know i think my issue with the with the the gap between recording and releasing has to do with its effect on the actual creative process itself because personally i find it difficult to start something new until i finish the last chapter and until you put that record out and you've shared it's very hard to say oh i'm going to go and run, write a whole bunch of new songs and start working on some some other direction and then try to reconnect with this record that i made six months ago and speak for it or perform it in a way that it is actually connected to how i'm feeling in the moment and so there's you know it, it has a it plays a part in how I approach writing music as well. So it's not just a sort of mechanical consideration. It's actually, you know, very much woven into the whole process. Well, you, um, lyrically though, that's that's very mindful for you. I, I'm assuming, we've never talked about that, but I mean, you, uh, you know, at the risk of sounding too cliche, but um, sort of the poetic nature of the things that you do, you somehow have found a very, that's why I say poetic, I guess, and maybe it's the wrong wrong language. So I absolutely invite your correction. But the you know you've been able to keep the lyrics simple enough to be digestible, mm -hmm. but poignant and still like there's a level of depth um, to it. And I, I guess I go back to "Don't Walk Away, Eileen," which is 
such a simple song, but really when you listen to the song, it has uh, a very deep connection. I think, I mean, not every, everybody's had an Eileen of some sort and um, they've had that experience of maybe it's the memory of being a teenager or maybe it's uh, just a recent relationship and, and all those things simplistically that connect to it. But at the same time, the song doesn't sound like a simple song. Um, it, it's rather poetic that way. It's just a pretty great rock song, right? Um, you can dance to it, you can have a good time to it and everything else. And you, you somehow manage to, to do all that. And as a guy who claims to like words I um, and sort of live into that world, I, I always find this amazing that that you're able to do that. I imagine that uh, if it were me, I, f I feel like it's this sort of whirlpool of simplify and write and rewrite and da 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 as opposed to just sort of letting it flow in the sort of presence that you describe. So um, I, I, that fascinates me of how you're able to do that. I feel like it's a contentious wrestling match, but I, I, I have a feeling that I'm wrong in that. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that you say that this sort of the effect that uh, you feel from it is is simplicity, because I think that's the desired outcome. Unfortunately, the processes can be anything but and finding that simplicity can be uh, a, a circuitous uh, journey, just to say the least, you know, and that that to me is what I'm always hoping to get across is a sort of uh, a human message that people connect with the words themselves. They can also connect with the sort of musicality of the words. And I think a lot of what what bounces off the songs in terms of which words I end up choosing or not has to do with whether the, the, the words themselves have a musical value to them. And I find that that sort of, that, that feeling of simplicity that you get happens when the words themselves become part of the, part of the musical picture instead of trying to impose poetry over the top of it. Uh, you know, in, in my mind, you can feel quite, it's almost like an allergic reaction, you know, when you put the wrong words uh, over the wrong music. Um, and my last record was a, was a, an exercise in that, uh, that process that took me about a year and a half to sort of once the record was almost finished, it took me a year and a half to actually find the words that were sort of not being rejected by the song. The way it almost like an organ transplant can be, you know, mm. an organ can be rejected. Uh, and it can be so many different things. They're not musical enough. They're not honest enough. Uh, they're too poetic or, you know, they're not poetic enough. All those things that you have to be the sort of, I guess, you know, the keeper of your own, be your own judge and jury in that res respect. And and again, I sp spent a lot of time down here throwing paint at the wall and not all of it sticks, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's incredible to think that there is so much that, that does and does not even, that we don't even get to hear, right? That we, we assume it's kind of like that one hit wonder or that, you know, overnight success sort of notion of, of famous people that, oh yeah, look at their overnight success. Well, if overnight success is 20 years of hard work, well then, then I guess that's yeah. what overnight success is, right? Like we Trust don't me, see you, most of it. You don't want to hear it. That's for sure. <laughs> it's that bad? Is it? It's bad in your <laughs> eyes. We'd probably think it was great. I don't know. I've, uh, I'm like, oh, this is, you know, this is cheesy. This is that, you know, it takes, and, and again, you have to learn to trust your own, your own response to it almost not your own instincts necessarily because your instincts also lead to bad decisions it's more just how do you respond if i have a if i have a negative sort of reaction to something i have to trust the idea that other people will have the same thing you know i, I think there's a sort of humanity to songwriting that's important to recognize yes there's the idea of the the artist is being uncompromising and blazing their own trail and you know hacking their way through the the weeds um with their you know, with their pen or their, you know, guitar. But there's there's the other part of it that says that I'm writing this song in a way to reach out to you. And I want you to feel the way I feel right now in, in your own way. And I use that as my sort of stop sign or stoplight. You know, it's like if I'm feeling something, I give it a green light. I keep chasing that idea until I stop feeling that thing anymore. And then I either backtrack or I'll change directions. And so, so yeah, my, it's not that I'm worried about whether people are going to like it or not. I, I, I guess I'm preoccupied with whether they're going to 
feel what I'm feeling or not. Yeah, I get that. I get that. I say here all the time that the gift that's truly given is the listening, right? I mean, I, on the radio, I, I try to come up with notions of inspiration that, you know, maybe make somebody's day better. And I only say it one time, but it gets heard thousands of times, mm-hmm. right? And so I always say the true gift that's given is the listening of everybody who's with us right now. And because that's being heard thousands of times, to me, that is way more profound than a guy saying it once. Mm-hmm. And so when you can live into the gift of listening, not agreement, but the gift of listening, true presence and hearing what you're saying, then that sort of changes the responsibility of what you say. I find that that to be a a deeply rooted place to start your conversation from, whether it's holding a door open for somebody at the shopping mall or whether someone comes to you with a bad day and you're trying to pump their tires and make them feel great. You know, I think our responsibility changes in the things that we share with the world when we realize the gift of listening. Well, I, I don't. I know you're interviewing me, but I'll ask you a quick question. But you know, just yeah. in terms of this new format for you, I having worked in FM radio, the sort of fast-paced world of FM radio, and now being able to sort of take your time with the conversation and to explore other ideas in more than sort of five-second-long sound bites, has that changed the way you approach what you've done over all these years? It's changed the way. I approach it. I think uh, there's less BS in 20 minutes versus five seconds for sure, because it's very easy to be a liar in five seconds. That's one thing that I think that I've taken away. And I don't mean it in the way of um, nefarious lying. I just mean it in the way of guarding yourself from what's really going on. That's probably the biggest change is that when you're doing rock radio or pop radio and you've got seven seconds on a song, it's very easy to put on your mask or your ego and deliver seven seconds of awesome. There was a time that I had a friend's mom pass away and I was on the phone. I was on the radio and I was doing rock radio at the time and I was on the phone and hey, my mom died and I I remember being empathetic to that. I was emotional. I had tears and you know, I, my apologies. And I was like, hang on a second. Mm-hmm. And then I went on the radio and I did the, uh, you know, rock radio, Sam Roberts, new hit single brother down oh, radio station. And then get back on the phone and then get back into that conversation. It's very easy to put a mask on for seven seconds. Um, so I think the biggest gift it's given me is the ability to live without that mask. I would say that that is probably the biggest shift getting out of that short form radio has allowed me the space as a person to be more authentic to it. Um, I I would equate it to, you know, um, a lot of pop music today releases songs that are less than two minutes long. It's very easy, um, to write four lines and repeat them. It's very hard to actually have something profound in writing that sticks with somebody. Um, right. So I, I, that's how I, that's my answer, I guess. Not very good at being interviewed perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to be able to flip the, flip the tables on you. You know, That's fun. <laughs> no, uh, I, no, that's I, fun. It's, it's funny that you mentioned song length because, you know, it's sort of, it's a bit of an abstract, uh, like parameter, you know, that's like a boundary that you put on a song. Um, and I remember, you know, when you say two minute long pop songs that, you know, repeats the same chorus like seven times and a few other mm-hmm. things happen kind of thing. And I remember being really proud when I broke the four and a half minute barrier because that's about that's what it took wow. for me <laughs> to go to say what I wanted to say in the time, you know, whether it be lyrically or musically or all that to go on the, you know, a sort of uh, a sufficient journey, so to speak. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, there's there's something to be said for uh, taking your time to say what you have to say. And then I, I do kind of also enjoy sort of having to sometimes cram, fit a song into a smaller, shorter period of time. And then also have people feel that in three and a half minutes or three minutes that they've actually been somewhere else. And, and yeah, it's a, it's a, I, I like the challenge of trying to write a song like that too. Taken on a journey is what what kind of came to mind as you said that. I just wanted to share that. The um, 
and short songs can be fresh. That's fun. Like, oh, that was fresh, right? Yeah. <laughs> Do you ever write a song or record something and and then listen back to it and go, oh, crap, there's four songs here. Like, I've actually taken four notions and squished mm-hmm. it into, I should break this into one notion four times. And um, there's four songs here. Does that ever happen when you hear it back and go, oh, wow, I'm telling four separate stories in this? I, I mean, it does happen. I, there's also the temptation to sort of put something away for a rainy day. So like, okay, if mm. I got four good ideas here, why don't I just leave three? And then I'll insert a mediocre idea to compensate for the fourth good one. And I'll take that one and put it in my back pocket for when I can't think of something to write. And then I think mm. you kind of have to fight that that urge, you know, that temptation. Do you lose the presence on that when even when you write down the idea yes. and then you go back through your little book and you're like, you know, it's you look back through your book and you're like, what the hell does that mean? Right? Yeah, all the time. I mean, my, my, you know, voice memos, if I don't Mm -hmm. give, I've learned over the years that voice memos are, can be the greatest tool, but they can also be the most sort of frustrating because if you don't give enough context to your idea, uh, just even though it's the clearest, you know, it's, it's right in front of you you can hear it in your head. You can hear every drum beat where it's supposed to be and, and the melody and all that. Yeah. And then you record what you think is just the essence of it, and you're going to come back to it a week later, and it's still going to be there. And of course, it's uh, how could you possibly lose something that's so, so vivid in your mind? And then you come yeah. back, and it's just this like freaking jarbled nonsense without any shape or form. And you're like, oh, there's another one gone. I've lost hundreds of songs, yeah, like that. So now I try to, I try to give my my little sort of self dictations a little bit more shape and context but sometimes yeah, you, wake, I totally you, do that. The, you know you're in the middle of the night you wake up from a sort of half sleep and it's there and you can hear it in your head and you uh, i try not to do it you know when i'm asleep uh yeah. or, you know in bed and wake everybody else in the house up kind of thing but uh i've learned to sort of actually go and and put those ideas down in a way that might make at least a little bit of sense afterwards yeah, I was just looking through my notebook and there's this note I saw right there. It just says, do what, do what only, says, only do what I can do, guardian. <laughs> what the hell is that? <laughs> like, I don't know. Um, fascinating. Okay, so this is where you're going to hate me because I'm going to flip the table on you. You asked me what it was like to do rock radio versus today. So I'll flip that back on you and say 20 years ago, Brother Down came out. Great success right off the hop. And here you are 20 years later with new music that you're kicking out. And um, you've got Picture of Love out. Um, how is Sam Roberts different today with Picture of Love versus Brother Down 20 years ago? Uh, you know, it's a tough question to answer because I think, you know, when you say different and like different, you can't just say different one big sort of global picture of who you are. It's a whole bunch of different right. parts, parts of you that are some of which haven't changed all that much uh, and some of which are are noticeably different even to myself. You know, I mean... We've been talking about songwriting, so we might as well start there. Because how I approach songwriting is very different than how I did uh, when I wrote those songs. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think that, that that's and that's one of the more positive things. I think not that writing songs has become easier. I just I, I find I, I I'm less in the way of the music that I'm making than I used to be, perhaps because in those days you bring so many things with you into every song that you write. Like, do, do people are they going to think it's cool? Are you going to make a fool of yourself? Are you going to, uh, you know, is this as good as this band? Is this as you know? And then I don't think about those things anymore. Like we're saying, I just think about how they make me feel, and in that way, I'm I'm able to sort of get out of the way of what I'm doing. So that's been a big change in, in the right direction, you know. And then is that uh, is that nothing but life, though? Maybe. Yeah, it's pr- you it just get out of your own a, way a little bit. Yeah, and friendships, a, relationships, all those things. Everything, you know, and I, I think it does extend into other parts of your parts of your life, or perhaps those other parts of your life are informing the way you write songs. You know, it's a bit of a symbiotic relationship. But uh, yeah, and then there's. There are other things that don't feel like they've changed very much at all. I'm still playing with my same bandmates. We still tell the same jokes. We're, you know, we're still ambitious. Uh, we still think about the future in terms of like, you know, okay, we got to 
make a better record than the last one or where can we go what musically what direction are we all feeling sort of fired up about now and there's still this sense of of fire and purpose in the band that's basically unchanged if anything it's almost burning hotter because you've you've become aware of the finite nature of what you do whereas at the beginning you just feel like you've got this wide open field and and you're also willing at, at the beginning to self-destruct a little bit more too because i i didn't i didn't really think that it was going to last for as long as it did i certainly didn't know that it was going to go the places that it did you know? especially at the very very beginning when somebody tells you that your songs played on the radio it's like oh that's great you know let's just enjoy the next three months and maybe we'll get 12 extra Labatt fifties on our rider from, from this, you know, it's kind of a <laughs> simple, simple goals at the time. And then you, and then more doors start opening for you. And as you go through them, you start inevitably to worry about, you know, whether those doors are going to start closing again and you become a bit sort of protectionist, and that's not a great place to be writing music from. It's not a great place to find, you know, sort of look at your life from. It's not a great place to, you know, think of your career. Uh, and you have to fight against that. And that's part of the, 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 I think the battle, the challenge of the early days is to sort of not become too scared of losing this, this slippery gem that somebody's just put in your hand, you know? And over time, you just learn to relax. And you learn to trust your instincts for better or worse. And I, I say that knowing that full well that we've made the tons of mistakes over the years on on many fronts, you know. But we're still here. So yeah. through through all of that, I guess our instincts have served us well, you know. Well, and I I was as you said that I what occurred to me was uh, I wish we had audio from 20 years ago one of our earlier chats and just to be able to hear just a clip of what that sounded like um you know i think that there are so many elements of myself and maybe you of yourself that you would recognize and so many elements that we wouldn't and that's kind of the magic of all of it isn't it to be able to you know take that from back then and go you know the core elements are the same but boy uh it sure is you know sure has changed that's oh cool. man, I, I can, I, when, if, and when I have the unfortunate, you know, pleasure or displeasure of seeing myself like a clip of me on TV or something, doing an interview back in the day, man, I can't watch it. <laughs> I also can't believe the stuff that comes out of my mouth, you know? Yeah. And yeah, I, I, usually, I was usually hungover too. So yeah. that, it was, it was like through the, the hangover filter and just sort of loose lipped and, and also this feeling that every time you said something, you, you had to make a freaking statement about it. You know, it had to be big and bold and brash. Otherwise nobody was going to remember you. So just, yeah, you know, just lay it all out there all the time. And, and like you said, it was a bit more of a rocky world back then. It was, um, yeah. You know, it was, it was, the world it, was really catered to you, I would say, because back it, then it was a rocky <laughs> world and you were not to say that you were the anti-hero, but you know, sonically you carved your path. And I, I admire the fact that you've kept that path. And uh, and and the world is sort of kind of catered towards you. I, one might say that you actually were about four or five years ahead. By the time the 2007, 2009 sort of ulti AOR stuff started to slide in, um, uh, the AOR stuff left, and then you started to get that sort of ulti feel, right? Um, that started to slide in towards the end of the 2000s towards 2010. I, it's, it's almost like you were ahead of the curve, man. It's great. Yeah, we were trying to make Afrobeat records after that, you know? It's like we'd already kind of moved. We, <laughs> we've, Afrobeat <laughs> we've, we've, already, we've always kind of missed the window, you know? It's just one of those things. And yeah, I mean, I love it. Uh, it, it. You can't complain because, like you said, when we made our first EP and Brother Dan came on the radio, there wasn't anything else that sounded like it on the radio. And that was definitely what helped us to. Um, gain some kind of foothold that wasn't there before you know but that being said being off the curve doesn't always serve you well maybe it will historically speaking when people look at what you've done uh but but certainly there have been times where we've been off step and we're like we're doing this and everything else is doing this and 
well, it hasn't worked for us the way that, say, like a brother down worked for us. So it's, there's no guarantee that uh, uh, that it's going to work, you know. But it did at the time, and like I said, we sort of jumped on the opportunity, and uh, we've been trying to hold on to it ever since. Well, in today's TikTok world, sometimes those old songs come back. Um, Allah running up that hill, and you never know what could come next. So that's the thing, and and where to go? Okay, one last question here. Sam Roberts joins us on the shift. Um, it's uh, do you still like a big old shot of whiskey when you run on stage to do a show? Or oh, that's another. That oh my god, that was. <laughs> that, I don't. I, it's one of those things. Again, it's a song, but like impulsive. You are back in the day, or we were back in the day, and somehow we. I think it was like a bang for your buck sort of formula so like if you had a bottle of jack daniels that it was it could do more damage or aka good than uh whatever else we could possibly afford at the time so but then the danger was that if you do it too much it becomes part of the whole show and then then once we should have sort of graduated sooner to red wine we stayed with (laughs) We stayed on that train for way too, way too long, uh, but yeah, it was it was it was it became a bit of a part of the whole sort of circus. Yeah. So the answer is, the answer is no. Although once in a while, like before, um, like if the show's been if we're playing a really really long show, maybe a little one just to soothe the vocal cords. That's nice, eh? See earlier comment about doing interviews while hungover, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, again, it was like, it felt like an occupational hazard at the time, you know, it's like, I, I don't know, I got to freaking drink Jack Daniels on stage every night, you know, because that's what people are yep. just, our backdrop so looked like it. I've literally never had it since. I don't, I think the last time I tried anywhere, went anywhere close to it, it was about 2003, so. At least but, a little uh, nicer whiskey, if nothing else, right? Yeah, you know, trying yeah. Good stuff. Sam, it's great to see your face, man. I really appreciate you. And um, the you, you've done, you have done and continue to do great things, I think, not only for Canadian music and, and for Canadians who listen to your music, but just, um, I just admire the work. And, uh, you know, from a couple of young guys, I, I'm happy to say you are a year older than me, by the way. I probably should declare that because it makes me feel good. Um, I'll keep I'll keep you around in my life just for that fact, so I can say that you're older than Listen, me. exactly whatever whatever I can do to help. <laughs> and uh, no, but I mean it. You've done uh, some really great stuff, man. I admire your dedication and your integrity to the craft and to yourself in it, and um, your stick to itness. Uh, at the risk of making up a word um, that is really great, Sam. Uh, I thoroughly enjoy it and I appreciate it. Well, thank you, thank you for those kind words and. You know, we we need them more than you think, for sure. It, it helps to get a little nod of uh, not just recognition, but encouragement to help us keep going. So thank you. This is the Shift Podcast. He's a disco dancer, he's a DIYer, he's a social media sensation, and he's uh, not quite as popular as the most that has been in his house. Handy Andy Barrar is here, handyandymedia.com. Uncle Andy, how are you? I'm good, Shane. You know what? I couldn't even be better. I am doing well today. So, we, we were talking about gambling a week ago, and we started taking bets from shift heads about the over-under on your mouse scenario. We did not think that it, we needed to put a timeline on the mouse scenario because technically many of the shift heads would have won their money, taken the bet uh, that the mouse was going to win. But in the long run, question mark, what happened? What was the update? So you got to rewind us back to Monday, by the way, because you've been all over all the TV channels talking about your mouse. I know this this mouse went viral. Let's let's take it back to November when this all started on this show, by the way, Shane. I suspected that I had a mouse in my house because I had a loaf of bread with a hole in the back. Mm -hmm. And after about the second or third loaf, I'm like, something is going on. So being a tech guy, Shane, I I thought, you know what? I'm going to review a new indoor wireless camera. Never really had a reason to review one of these, but I'm like, 
this should be able to catch a mouse. So I set it up on this um, loaf of bread. And sure enough, there was a mouse coming at nighttime eating this bread. And that started off this rivalry between this mouse. And for the next couple of days, I used that wireless camera to track the location of this mouse and determined it was coming underneath my dishwasher. I pulled that dishwasher out. There was a huge hole where the electrical cord came into the wall. I filled that hole in. I set up a little trap of little dessert with um, the camera and the mouse never came back. And I was patting myself back. I was talking on the show how how handy I was in, in catching that mouse. And then three months later, Shane, again, a loaf of bread, there's a hole in the back. And I'm like, could it be the same mouse? Did it get back in? So I set up another camera and sure enough, the same mouse was back eating the bread. And then it was on round two of man versus mouse. This one was not easy. I had not one, but three different cameras this time. I took the outdoor security cameras around my property and brought them all indoors to try to track this mouse. And here's what I've learned about trying to use wireless camera, Shane. They take a little bit of time from when they detect the motion to start recording. And mice are very, very fast. So I could never actually physically see that mouse coming out of a hole. It was just running around everywhere. And so for days, I had to keep moving these cameras to try to narrow down where this mouse hole was. And it turned out I didn't find one hole. I found two holes, one above my kitchen cabinets in the bulkhead. I thought that was the hole, but then the mouse came back. So I had to do what I call D-Day and pretty much take my entire kitchen apart to find this hole, Shane. And I saw after that taking video. everything apart, I realized that where this I have this vertical indoor garden that I built during the pandemic. When I took that apart and I was able to look underneath the cabinets on this one side, I noticed there was a small hole in the insulation foam that I was trying to fill a crack in. And sure enough, I can get my fingers down there. So I put some steel wool into that hole, set up my mousetrap with the peanut butter and the wireless cameras and the mouse never came back. Meanwhile, I was posting this on Twitter and the mouse went viral. I'm talking like 50, 60,000 views of this mouse running around, you know, making uh, havoc of my life. But finally, I think it was about five days, Shane, it took of, of, of hunting this mouse hole. I was able to track that mouse and I got a lot of responses on Twitter. So people all have different opinions of what to do if you have a mouse in your house, but I didn't want to kill it. I kind of developed an attachment to it because I was watching it on camera every day. Uh, so That's it gets weird. to live another day yeah. and I get to leave a loaf of bread on my kitchen counter again without it getting a hole. You are a mouse voyeur now. That's weird. <laughs> um, so now, but you don't know if the mouse is out of your house because he's just out of your kitchen, right? Because you That's, didn't actually, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's probably in the walls somewhere. The way that I figure, you know, it got into the house, it could leave. Like, I have an old house, Shane. It's from the 1940s. I renovated it. I just don't know if I'll ever be able to figure out how it's actually getting into the house. So it's probably running around in between the walls. But right you now, kill it's it, not getting it's into the And it's now dead in the wall, starving, going, Andy, <laughs> I'm hungry. Where's my bread? And now, you've, now you're die causing it a slow death, sitting in the wall, dying. Way to go, Andy. Apparently, it takes a, about a year. A mice that the, the, they last for about one year from birth to death. So mm -hmm. it was about three months. So I actually looked at the video. It's the same mouse. You know, you look at the tail. Yeah. I don't know if mice have the same length of tails, but this one, and and the same modus operandi. It went to the <laughs> oh same <God>. place. <laughs> you know, had the same gate. Like oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Oh, it was. Uh, it was definitely the same mouse. Um, and I give him a name, Jerry. I call him Jerry after Tom and Jerry. That's very good. That's the name of the mouse. Yeah. And then he killed him by locking him in the wall. Well done. I didn't. I didn't kill him. He just can't get in. You know, it's a, it's a big difference there with that. I don't know. We'll wait and see. Um, it, it. We'll see if it smells. I this. I can hear. I can hear the conversation three weeks from now. Shane, I got a strange smell coming from my wall. <laughs> I can't figure out what it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, um, so you did, you did get into the, uh, the, the validity and, and how well the video cameras worked and how well they worked in the dark. I mean, so there's a lot to be learned from anybody who's been considering putting cameras in their place too. Uh, you know, most people put cameras in the house to catch their teenager sneaking out, but yeah. hey, whatever floats your boat in Surrey there, bud. 
Hey, another thing that I learned about these security cameras is when they get activated by motion, they make a slight like clicking sound. And that's enough to startle the mouse where it would be like, what was that? And then it will run away. So there's other security cameras that you can get. D-Link is a company. I actually had this a home security system that I set up at my parents' house. I took all those cameras down, Shane, because just in case I couldn't find that hole during that D-Day, I was going to set them up everywhere, six cameras in total. But one of them has a spotlight. So if there is a motion detection, it will then have this huge light. And I was going to use that to startle the mouse to make it run back into the hole and then have other cameras positioned around to figure out where it was actually going in. But be between that delay and that little clicking sound that, that these cameras make when it detects motion, that's enough to startle the mouse. So you kind of have to use them very strategically, these cameras, but they're an excellent, excellent tool. To, to find the location of mice, especially when you're sleeping at night, that's when they come. So if you're not a night owl, it's going to be very, very hard to figure out where they're coming in unless you have some type of motion detection wireless security cameras to use. You know what my biggest takeaway in all this is? What's that, Shane? I, I imagine Handy lying in bed staring at the ceiling and... I, I would in that moment, I wish I could know what was going through your head <laughs> Oh man! because you know, it's, it's like, I, I, oh my God, what am I going to do? I got to get that stupid mouse and it's my bread. Cause you're frugal first of all. So you don't want to eating your bread. And then second of all, you're like, well, I got to catch him. Well, I know I can be a total nerd about this. And then, then you get all excited about it and then you're all excited and then you want to get up and do stuff, but you're like, this is, this is what I imagine that goes on inside your head. It was very true. But you know what? It was a whole nother level. Because I had shared these videos on Twitter, people were very, very engaged in this story. There were People were responding back to me like, this is better than Netflix. I can't wait. Every day I wait to get an update <laughs> on what's going on. So it was like all of this pressure. My nickname is Handy Andy. People are like, why don't you hire a professional? I'm like... My entire reputation is at stake here with yeah. this mouse. Like I, and you're right. All night, all I could think about is, okay, if this doesn't work, what's what's the next thing I'm gonna do if I to catch it? That's why I went and got those extra security cameras because I'm like, if I take this entire kitchen apart and I don't find a hole, I'm gonna set up six cameras everywhere. It was like a different brand. It would have to install all these apps and everything, <laughs> but I was willing to do it, Shane. I was willing to do it to find that hole. The, the the mouse story, Andy's been watching this mouse voyeur style on um, on cameras, and it's weird, right? It's almost like the mouse was a tenant in in his Airbnb, and then Andy was watching it. Now, that wouldn't actually be a thing in real life, would it, Andy? <clears throat> well, the, the thing is, it's kind of funny, is I do have an Airbnb suite at my house, and I do have mm -hmm. a camera, outdoor camera, that faces the door where they enter. So I can see when they check in and they check out. Now, it, it gives as a host, it gives you a lot of peace of mind because you know when people are arriving and when they're leaving. But I can imagine as guests, um, it can be like kind of creepy and you feel creeped out. So for me to kind of like, you know, try to find a middle ground is in the actual description chain, I say that, listen, there's security cameras around the entire premise. And even when they enter uh, on the gate, it says this area is being monitored. But some of the hosts that are monitoring their area, they're taking a little too far and it's making guests very, very uncomfortable. So for people that are having Airbnb suites, I do understand why you want to use cameras. But at the same time, you have to use them carefully so that you don't creep out guests. And I think that's been a big issue that's been happening um, with the the kind of debate between guests and hosts on on the use of these cameras because you're not allowed to have them indoors. I just want everyone to know that's completely illegal. But outside, a lot of hosts will do that because they want to know when the guests check in and importantly, when they check out so you don't accidentally walk in on them or the cleaners walk in on them. So there are benefits, but I think the communication needs to be better between the hosts and the guests uh, when you're staying at Airbnbs, knowing uh, beforehand if there's cameras or not and if that's something that you're comfortable with. That would have been handy when I had an Airbnb and a prostitute rented it. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's the issue. When I when I first started Shane, you know, I I didn't I never I never knew like what it was like to be a host on Airbnb. But I was very, very glad that I put that camera because I would have young kids who would be like, oh, it's just me and my friend. And then they would invite other friends and other friends. Next thing you know, it's like a full on house party in there. And because I had that evidence of more than two people going into that suite, I was actually able to use that when I had a dispute. I used that as evidence with Airbnb to prove that this person um, you know, broke the house rules by having uninvited guests over. So it, it does, as a host, give you a lot. Like, let's put it this way. If I wasn't able to use outdoor cameras, I don't think I would have an Airbnb suite. I would just have too much anxiety not knowing who came in or who didn't come out or how many people came in, uh, stuff like that. So it, it is critical. So for guests, I, I think that you should understand from the host point of view, the importance of having one just to see if people are coming in and out. But at the same time, you have to be very careful because a lot of, you have to understand, Shane, these security cameras, they have, they have microphones and speakers. So you yeah. could actually talk to people through them, just like, you know, the ring doorbells, you can have conversations. But if you're a host, do not use that feature unless it's absolutely necessary because your guests will get completely creeped out. If you're like, please get out of the pool, it's past 10 p.m. You know, they're going to be like, what? You know, nobody wants someone watching them. Um, so you you really have to, you know, thread that needle carefully if you're going to use cameras. But I do think it's essential just for the peace of mind, uh, especially if you don't live in that residence, if it's somewhere else. You, like a vacation home, you definitely going to want to have a security camera just so that you can sleep at night. Now, as a father, having a security camera that I can talk back on is awesome. Yes. When I got mine, uh, and mine actually covers in my townhouse, both the, I can see the back door and the front door all in one shot. So I can see the whole, the, both entrances. And um, it's really great. And, and uh, jokingly, I was away for a moment and I, I just had coincidentally turned it on i wasn't looking there was nothing else going on and and callie was on the phone with one of her friends and she was in the kitchen like making a sandwich and i uh she's on the phone she's like yeah my dad got this new camera unless he's watching me right now and the timing was perfect because <laughs> i just turned it on to see if it was working i wasn't actually watching i just i just had it was total coincidence i turned it on so i hit the mic button i was like nope not watching <laughs> that was all i said and she freaked right out it was so good oh i loved it I saw, I saw a thing online where a woman had a doorbell camera and the police were at her front door and she saw that she got the motion oh. detection. So solved did you the crime. Yeah, we yeah, ran it here the on the shift. Yeah, we did it as part of our REO case. She actually solved the crime by using her cameras because the, the police officers came to the door. It's really great. Um, I love it. Uh, Handy Eddie Barrar is here. It's the shift. Amazon. Uh, so Netflix over the weekend, last weekend, did a live event, which basically means we've gone backwards in time. Netflix yes. has gone from being an internet channel into being a live, what cable used to be channel. And ironically, they deliver most of that over the cable internet. So that's terrible. Amazon tried to go backwards in time and open up some convenience stores and literally go back to brick and mortar. That one's not working out quite as well, is it? No, their idea of having these brick and mortar, uh, convenient cashierless stores. So uh, literally, you walk in, you grab whatever you want, and you walk out. No cashier required. Everything gets scanned through scanners. It knows what you picked up and what you left with. Well, eight of those stores, those cashierless go scores, go stores, I should say, uh, they're going to be closing them down. They're making a lot of cost cuts, and uh, that concept. I don't know. I. I don't really know if it really picked up and people have adopted it, but they're closing those stores. They said they might open up new ones in different locations, but it's the latest in cost-cut measures that Amazon is doing. They're supposed to have a second headquarters in Virginia. They're cutting that as well. And that just shows you where the economy is going. When a company like Amazon is making cuts, you know you should be worried because uh, they made a lot of money during the pandemic. We relied on them. I think they thought that was going to be the future and they had all these other kind of concepts. Unfortunately, it's not working. So those cuts are happening right across the board for their brick and mortar stores. 
You had to have the right payment system. And even Walmart in Portland due to theft is closing all the stores in Portland. So, I mean, uh, people are people are taking stuff and it's got to be expensive. HandyAndyMedia.com if you want to connect and see all those videos on his YouTube channel for all the mice and the mouse chasing and his mice mouse voyeurism. Thank you for being here, brother. Thanks, Shane. This is the Shift Podcast. A few weeks ago, we received a message from a guy, a shift head in Winnipeg named Jim. And Jim made a comment to us about being a bailiff, about being the repo man, if you will. And uh, that got us really curious. So I asked Ryan, I said, uh, I said, you guys got to grab Jim's info. Let's reach out. I want to have a conversation with this guy. And um, turns out he's not big and mean after all. Um, he's a really nice guy. Jim Wilcox is here. He's a bailiff. He's in Winnipeg. And um, and you're not big and mean, although some people might think that with your job. How did how does this go for you, Jim? Welcome to the shift. Well, thank you very much. Well, you know, to start with, uh, as I mentioned before, when I called in a couple of weeks ago, I was originally a manor of Randy River Clothing Store. And, and, it's, and it's funny because this just happened before Sunday shopping started before I left my profession selling clothes. And it all started by asking, I had a part-time fellow working for me by the name of Jason. And he was leaving the store, he asked to leave 10 minutes earlier and I asked him why. And simply by asking him that one question, it changed my life. So I said, where are you going? He says, I'm gonna go serve a court document. I go, what do you mean you're gonna go serve a court document? He says, I work for this process serving company and the guy doesn't wanna work at night. I'm gonna go out, I'm gonna serve a document. I go, really? Yeah, he says, I just got to give the person a document. I get $30 for it. Now you got to remember, this is in 1991. So mm. $30, 1991, good money. So I, I said to him, so what happens uh, if you serve two? He says, well, if I have served two, I make 60. If I serve 10, I make 300. And if you serve 10 and it's an enclosed area, I, I can do this an hour, hour and a half. I go, well, that's pretty good money. Needless to say, I quit. I had a friend that, I had a friend that was a lawyer and he had, uh, six offices in six different malls in the city. And they tried me out and I found out that I found my niche. That's cool. What was really cool is the very first serve I had, it was based on uh, a couple, just to give you a, there's a lot of stories between process serving and, and doing repo work. Uh, a couple in their 60s, for example, my very first serve, I have to go serve a fella. Uh, the couple has been together for a couple of years. Apparently she went out and she went and bought furniture, $30,000 from my end furniture store. This relationship fell apart. She moved out. He kept the furniture. She created a statement to claim. They gave me the statement to claim to go serve. And I have to tell you, it's my first serve, so I'm nervous, right? It just so happened mm -hmm. to be the only house on the block that has the mailbox on the fence, not on the house. As I roll up and I have a picture of him, there he's checking his mail. I come up to him and I serve him. I walk back to my vehicle. I hear this unusual, unusual noise, like a motor starting up in the garage. And I turn around and I look. He ran back into the garage. He came out running with the chainsaw going. I thought he was coming after me or my vehicle, right? He went back into the house. And I was curious. So I hopped the oh, fence, no. looked in the window. Yes. Oh, no. The dining room table. In half. In half. The chairs. I wasn't going to stick around to see what else. Well, I got back to my vehicle, and I said, I am sold. This is the job for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's, okay, I don't know, so it's now, a little now, more thrilling. Not all serves are like this. Come on, but I'll tell you what. Every day when you're serving court documents, just based on that, and after doing this for 32 years, I can tell you stories and stories and stories around the campfire. A lot of it I couldn't mention on the radio. Um, I'm sure one day when I'm when I retire and I never plan to retire because if I do, I'll probably be on my deathbed. Because when you enjoy doing your job as much as I do, this doesn't feel like work, and I feel like I haven't really worked in 32 years. Right? That's cool. Um, yeah, no, it's uh, it's an amazing job because from from year one till today in 15 minutes my whole day can change the unexpected and the ch and challenges that you face um whether you're serving documents for the government or, or you're serving documents for the banks or the credit union sometimes private people you you try to help them out 
customer ratio of 70% or is always happy with you. For example, if you're, if you're serving, and I don't do family that much anymore, but when you're serving divorced doctors, for example, there's always somebody that either wants their divorce or don't want their divorce. And when you do the job for the client, well, the client's happy and the person that you're serving wants their divorce, they're happy. So you have a 100% ratio. Sometimes it's the other way around. Yeah, it's a little more of a surprise, I yeah, suppose. A little bit more of a surprise. And there's nothing more challenging than when you're looking for somebody for any particular reason and you're speaking to them on the phone and then they challenge you and you say, you'll never find me. And that's where the adventure comes in. Mm. Oh, I bet. I can only imagine. I, I, I do have to ask you to share one of those stories. But before we do that, um, do, do you ever feel like, because there's somebody's going to be happy, right? You're serving somebody, the needs of somebody. Uh, you, you're providing that service to serve their needs. But sometimes it might feel backwards, right? That the wrong person is is getting served here. Does that ever get tangled up for you where the, maybe the, per, the, the negative experience is where you personally connect to more so than... You know what I mean? Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. And there's, and there's a few examples. Uh, if I'm doing a, what, what do you do when you're doing a foreclosure on on somebody and they're going to lose their home? And and it isn't because they're not making contact with the bank or the credit union or they they're they're not trying to evade something. But there's hard life circumstances where the wife has a job and the husband has a job and and but they're not quite making ends meet. And you're literally saying, well, you've got to be out of your home and. 30 or 60 days or uh, like bailiff can't come in and physically throw you out. So my job is to ask you to leave uh, or to reconnect with the bank. If, if there's other reasons where you can make good on it. And if you don't leave the home, then what happens? The sheriff's get involved in, or when you're having to repo a home from somebody that you went to school with. Ah, uh, that right? would suck. Oh, it, it sucks. It sucks really bad because you know, I have a heart, I have emotions, I have empathy. I know how people feel, but uh, I went to school with this person. Uh, they were in nursing. They bent over. They blew out their back so bad that they'll never be able to really function again normally and definitely not in your job. And you got to take away their home. Yeah, that's that's sad, right? Um, sometimes there's situations where people are leaving their or losing their home or uh, because of sickness. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and and that's it's it's hard to take. But in that same note, there's always uh, it, it it hurts to see people suffer. But and then then I'll get hired from uh, let's say let's just call them John Q. Public, and they're the ones that'll mm-hmm. call you and they they they'll hire you and they say I want this person served. Now it could be just because you're being served, it doesn't necessarily mean you're in the wrong, right? There are people out there yep. that might file a claim against you where a claim shouldn't be filed. Um, uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of situations, lots of situations. Yeah. Don't, you can't assume too much, I suppose. Well, I, w- I wouldn't, um, because you never know you're not, you're not the judge in this scenario. You're just doing the service. Uh, Jim Wallach is here. He's helping us understand what is it like to be a bailiff? He's in Winnipeg. And so wild stories, I got to ask, you got to share, can you share a couple, like, I mean, a guy taking a chainsaw and cutting the furniture that his ex-wife is trying to claim from him in the house. I mean, that's. That's pretty good, but there must be some crazy, surprising, wild stories that that even you can't believe today. Yeah, um, I've walked into buildings where they maybe haven't been unlocked. Where I've I've walked into chop shops accidentally. Uh, I've walked into. I've dealt with um, small gangs, medium gangs, professional gangs, motorcycle clubs. Um, I've had I've had knives. I've been attacked 13 times with a knife, never been cut. Once with a machete, never been cut. Uh, shot in the chest with a actually an air pistol, and I had a ball bearing lodged into my rib uh, in Saskatchewan in a farmyard. And then, this is funny because when you're going out the farmyards, the old farmyards, they have all the trees and the bushes around them to block the wind. So, you know, you, no one sees you drive in, no one's going to see you drive out. So, you can never really tell what the situation is going to be. In this one particular case, we had a farmer that in, in Saskatchewan that had uh, amusement rides and he didn't have any insurance and a child fell out of a Ferris wheel and damage to the spleen and he had no insurance. So literally the farmer is losing the farm. Wow. Right. Walking back to my vehicle, I always take, when you're always on the road, you always take uh, a change of clothes because, you know, it's safer to be yeah, safer to be safe than sorry. And, uh, I was wearing shorts and it was a warm summer day. Looked down on my leg. I felt like my re- my right leg was flushed. I looked down and my leg soaked in blood. 
and I couldn't understand why. But I got hit with a bull or bow and arrow because I never heard anything. It been a stray bullet. It was just granged on the inside of my leg. Kind of missed Jim and the twins and uh, oh, my lucky boy. stars. And you go on from there. But it's the it's the air pistol to the chest that affected me the most because I walked into a house in in our center in our core area. A uh, lady opened up the door. Uh, it was a gang member house, and so there's somebody sitting down the hallway in a kitchen table, pointing a gun right at me. He fired it off, and I was wearing winter clothes. Thank goodness, it went through all my clothing and hit me in the rib. Six weeks it took me to not be afraid, and after six weeks, I probably would have sought to get some type of help or I would have probably just been out of the business. And you love it though. <laughs> like, yeah. like, that's the part I'm like, come on, Jim. No, no, like, it, no. And, and, and through time things have changed, right? The first year that we wear body cams and even our police officers in Winnipeg don't wear body cams. We do yeah. because uh, it holds us to a, a different standard because I can't do anything that I shouldn't be doing because it's on video if I ever have to use it. If I have to have somebody that I'm serving and they say they're not them, I can at least go back to the client to say, hey, this is the person I was talking to. Are these the right people? Uh, I've had the video camera almost now for 10 months. It saved my bacon from two very serious accusations against me, and uh, which the video proved that uh, the accusations are false. Um uh, COVID, for example, when COVID started three was it three years ago, nobody knew what the job was going to detail. Are we going to be in work, out of work? I know the banks weren't really pressuring because of COVID times when it came to uh, credit lines or repossessing of the homes. Everything was held back. And I was just wondering where business is going to go. However, when it came to serving court documents, business has tripled. Now, this is the perfect scenario. COVID started. It came here in March. I got it two months before it came here because I was in Vancouver for overnight. So I was the first one to experience it. The first person in Manitoba to die of COVID was my wife's friend. So we had the reality check on it right away. And now, because we are considered essential workers, I have to go and serve court documents and everybody's afraid of being within 100 feet of anybody, right? So everybody that I practically served wore masks. I wore masks. But the perfect scenario was, Gas was cheap. Nobody was on the streets. Everybody was yeah. home. It was amazing. Yeah, because everyone's at home. Yeah. Do you worry, though, about some of these bad guys, you know, knowing you? Or are you able to be work in that kind, respectable way that uh, alleviates that? They realize you're just doing your job. I mean, doesn't that carry over and cause you some grief as a bailiff? You know what? You can go in as a bailiff. And we have bailiffs here in the city that are very aggressive. And they start off aggressive. They use the F-bomb. In my personal opinion, that's the wrong way. I have never really had any trouble um, serving anybody at any level because I can show them respect. And my approach is, how, even though this isn't a good situation that I'm at the door, but how can I make this better for you in some way, right? I don't go along the grain of being aggressive because whatever you dish out, you're going to get back. I do my very best, and I'm pretty good at what I do when it comes to reading people. And I can tell you right now, appearance is nothing. It doesn't matter how rough and tough or how big you look or how many tattoos you have. There's a soul and a spirit under the in, inside that body. And if you can find a way to reach out to them and treat it, it's amazing how much respect you'll get back. I, I can go into uh, a local store. Obviously, as I, I might have mentioned to you, that I go into all the prisons. Prison uh, in, in the province closer to the city um, and, I, and I meet all types I was in a line one time at Superstore and I can see this fella approaching me and I went okay here we go right he recognizes me and I sort of think I recognize him and I know it's somebody that I've had to deal with with my job I go what's going to happen he took his hand out of his pocket because he had his hand when he was walking and he went out and he wanted to shake my hand he said, I just wanted to thank you very much. He said, you served me when I was in prison. And the whole two years I was there, you're the only one that ever gave me any respect. What a difference that must make um, for everybody to think that they come from that. Uh, these are fascinating stories, and I absolutely love it. And um, 
it's crazy to think. There, I realize we're I we're going to draw to a close here, Jim. But there's, I think we can do this for a really long time. So I do look forward to having more conversation, um, and digging is, into this sure. again. But what do you what do you say? Um, I mean, what I hear in this is I hear a real lesson for how we treat each other, not just hey, by the way, here's your documents. What do you say to all the people? Your take of the world today, uh, empathy, understanding, lack of judgment respect all those pieces that you talk about we can we don't have to be a bailiff to learn from this lesson so what do you say to everybody about the world today and the things you've learned in this job first of all bad things happen to good people don't break communication when communication is needed especially with the banks no bank no credit union wants to take away your car nobody wants to take away your home they'd rather work with you i'm out there because communication has been broken when it comes to repoing a vehicle, it isn't even so much of finding the vehicle. And my my ratio for finding vehicles, I'm proud to say, is 100%. What I prefer to do is to be able to not take that vehicle, reestablish connection with the financial institutions, let them work with you, and you can keep your vehicle and you can move on there. Don't judge people. That's That's the main thing. And truly, treat people the way you want to be treated. You'll get much further ahead in life. It's good advice. Uh, Jim Willocks is a bailiff. He's in Winnipeg, and uh, he's also a shift head. So thank you for being a shift head and listening to the show. Thank you, Jim, for contributing to the show and uh, and sharing your story with us. I, I truly appreciate it, man. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 